Good evening and welcome to FOS, where we are creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus by becoming rooted while being reduced to love as we begin reimagining our faith together. My name is Glenn and I'm a part of the teaching team here, but we want to take a moment just because the coronavirus has been impacting our communities and we want to be intentional about how we engage this. So for the foreseeable future, our gatherings will be a little different because we want to do our part for the wider community in order to delimit the negative effect of the coronavirus. Larger larger public gatherings have been shut down, but this does not cancel our desire for community nor our need to remain present with each other. So over the next few weeks, we'll gather online and give links for following up with the community and how we're processing together on the website, fos.church, or social medias. So please just pay attention to those and we'll be able to stay in touch and move forward together. If you've been journeying with us over the last month, you've been experiencing the expanding conversation of leadership, which understands the ways each of us holds space within community through the lens of APES. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teachers are ways of holding space and affecting community. As Ephesians 4 says, 4.15, practicing the truth, and in this it would be also referencing the fivefold ministries, in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. From him, the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. Part of our growth is not only learning to hear our own voice and to find its place within community, but also to hear the voices which do not immediately resonate with us and value their ways of holding space, which are identified in each of the five, as Ephesians says, gifts from Christ for equipping the community to enter into a new life-giving way. Today, we're going to be focusing on teacher, which permeates the biblical narrative as a form of a sage or guru. And this is the world that inspires Ephesians. So when it says we have apostles, shepherds, teachers, we want to try to get our mind into the world of what they would be expecting. Normally, I would strive to work out one text in order to hear how that passage can be nuanced and, our, and how it could affect our thinkings. But today needs a wider reading. Therefore, we'll move through a little history and a few passages in the biblical text. We'll then move into an example of immature and mature teachers, or as it says within the book Church's Movement, the shadow and strength of a teacher. Since it can be a struggle to see our own characters in a positive light, I'll use some of my own story of maturing as a teacher and hopefully highlight areas of growth along the way. If you cringe with me, we might share the same parts of Ephesians' fivefold ministry. So what comes to mind when we say teacher? When I asked a question like this of, of a professor I had in psychology, she immediately responded towards me negatively, said, I am not a teacher. I'm a professor. I actually do research. Because in her head, and this wasn't a bad distinction, the difference between the teacher to professor in her mind for our academic environment is how much original data are you collecting because she was an expert in her field. There was a time with my father who raised me in the church and he would often say of me when I'd complicate things, 
said, oh, no, no, forgive Glenn. He's a teacher, not a preacher. He'll make things complicated because given the world that he came from, the ones who make the simple complex are the ones with the most data, the experts in the field, just like my psychology prof. It's like, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to deal with students because I'm an expert. My father, in saying that, recognized my giftedness, but being unfamiliar with a wider notion of teaching, thought it was a disposition rather than a gift just needing maturity. This is because our notions of teaching are shaped by who we imagine as the ideal teacher. Our cultural notion is shaped by the development of Western academia. Teachers are trained professionals that lecture out of their expertise in a subject which grants them a natural authority to speak. To question or challenge their academic standing is to challenge their theory rather than the effect their theory has on life. And this will discredit their standing as a teacher because the teacher is the most right knower of details. But when we pull back into what Ephesians would be talking about, we can look at the biblical dictionary of imagery and they say a teacher or teaching in the ancient Near East or around the world of Ephesians are the events and activities and images that mark education and the markers for them would be missing in the education system of our day. Because the classroom with professional teachers who are trained as much in pedagogy, which is a theory of teaching, as in a content area is simply not present in the Bible. The education of ancient Israel is closer to what might be termed deliberate enculturation or no formal education. It's more like an apprentice with a sage. The biblical images of education and teaching are generally not oriented to schooling activities, which is simply to say they weren't just trying to give you a theory or a system. You were more closely tied to the teacher who walked along with you to help you step into life story well. This sounds a lot like the fivefold attributes outlined in church's movement to where they say teachers interpret and inform. Teachers are good at interpreting the text and informing others. They are great at gathering knowledge and passing on wisdom. We could call teachers light givers because they shed light on scripture and help people understand it in a life-giving way, which would be to say their focus isn't always historical, critical, or to debate within academics, but how do we have a more life-giving presence within our community? It goes on to say they help us inhabit the sacred text, immerse people in God's story, and teach people how to dwell faithfully in God's story. Teachers cultivate learning environments so that the whole body is growing in knowledge, wisdom, and maturity. Contrast that with some of the notions we would generally have in our minds when we say teacher. We generally stick with knowledge. If you have a good knowledge base and you can explain that, then you're a good teacher. But within the biblical understanding around Ephesians, you would say, well, they have to have a knowledge base. You have to know some things you're talking about. But it matters to have it accompanied with wisdom and maturity. It's not enough just to know. You must know well in order to live into a wise life. So now let's step into the biblical text a little. Proverbs and wisdom traditions in the Old Testament shape the expectations of the teacher for them in much the same way that the university or academia shapes our own. The teachers which would influence the New Testament are seen in famous rabbis like Hillel, who lived between 110 BCE to 10 CE. 
he could have a, a long life. And he, he focused on some of the ways that our New Testament writers would understand how their Jewishness could be held. And he coined a phrase. He said he focused on tikkun halom, which gets translated repairing the world. And it's commonly used in rabbinic literature today as a gloss for social justice. Hillel first utilized the principle of tikkun halam as a rationale for modifying their sacred stories, which inspire their Torah law. The Torah is the way they understood the relationship to God and each other. So this wasn't some like marginalized, nice, wise wisdom tradition out to the side. This was the main way they understood their relationships. He invoked tikkun halam to argue successfully for an all but heretical act the overturning of an explicit law in the name of compassion because he wanted to push the community towards a wise and life-giving way. This, is, this shows the depth of his wisdom, especially in the story of him converting a Gentile, someone who would not be from his in-group, demonstrating the difference between the modern teacher and ancient ones. The story goes... Convert me to Judaism on the condition that you will teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. One of Hillel's competitors, named Shammai, pushed the man away with the building rod he was using. Undeterred, the man then came to Hillel with the same request. Teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Hillel said to him, That which is hateful unto you, do not do unto your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. Now go and study. Today, if we're asked that question around religion or faith, we might expect a famous teacher to offer an, an apology, or a, in, a, in other words, a defense of the faith, which gives extensive historical argumentation for its matter-of-fact truth, the absolute normalizing thing above all things. But Hillel, and later even Jesus, point to a more practical matter of living well. Because we, if we jump forward a few decades, we see in Matthew 5, 1 to 2, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them by saying, In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you. For this fulfills the law and the prophets. Now, the Sermon on the Mount demonstrates Jesus' teaching style. And we just saw that he said the whole Torah could be summed up in this, that you treat others as you would want to be treated, focusing on matters of relationship and ethics. And notice how similar that is to Hillel's statement, where he says the details are secondary. The exact law, the specific rules, the in-out structure is secondary to loving. Now, Hillel may have put it into a negative stance because that's easier for us to wrap our minds around. When we say, what you hate, don't do to somebody else, we like, I know all the things I dislike. But when you say to positive construction, to treat as you want to be treated, shows pushing towards some ideal. But both of them have this notion because Jesus calls people to, to sit with his teachings. Hillel says, go and study the whole Torah. But both of them says, at first, primary love. And as you love, as you show positive effect, go and study so you can be better versed. So let's look at some of the examples of ancient teachers going through the text. 
since they pull from some of the wisdom traditions. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, show some of the effect that they hoped for with the teacher. It said, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to learn wisdom and moral instruction, to discern wise counsel, to receive moral instruction and skillful living in righteousness, justice, and and equity, to impart shrewdness to the morally naive and a discerning path to the young person, to discern the meaning of a proverb and a parable, the sayings of the wise and their riddles. If we notice here, they have expectation of the mature teacher or teachings that they enable people to weigh through wisdom and folly with the hope of leading people to wise living and its basis in God. So we would say, who is the teacher in Proverbs? It's not the one who knows the most esoteric knowledge. It's not the one with the best jargon. It said it's the one who can help you learn to discern and to receive instruction that is helpful for a skillful living, righteousness, justice, and equity. Those might not be things that, that we hear a lot of times when we hear righteousness, justice, and equity is a point of teaching. So let's look at those terms a little bit. The topics were born out of lived experience. So when they talked about righteousness and justice, they usually poured to those who are marginalized within their community throughout Proverbs. Mm-hmm. The ones who needed righteousness were the ones who were poor and had unjust scales added to them. Now, righteousness would be Sadiq, which often when we think righteousness, we think is an abstract category of things. But within the Hebrew Bible, righteousness was how you related to each other. Justice wasn't just the legal system. It was the judgment of the community that helped us know how do we protect. And equity was the ability to see people's representation within the legal system. So if we see it this way as relational stances, then the skillful living has to do with proper relationships, with honoring community wisdom, and the value of representation within legal systems. You see, that takes it out of this kind of metaphysic area. This takes it out of this high-minded area to where you say, what does the teacher do? A teacher helps you understand how to do right by your neighbor. A teacher doesn't pull you away from the community, but better helps you inhabit the community. A teacher helps you understand the community's wisdom so that you're not just bucking against the system. You're not just saying, I live as an anti-statement to the statement of something I reject. You're able to positively construct a way to live with people and that you value representation because not every voice gets heard well. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, says the words of the sages, sages would be another way for wise person or teacher, are like prods and the collected sayings are like firmly fixed nails. They are given by one shepherd. So here it shows us the task of the teacher was to bring the world of the community, because for them you're never separated from your social group, to an intentionally stable place like firmly fixed nails. So when we think of teaching, It sits between the tradition as received and the growing particularity of the communities to come. So for those of us who would identify ourselves with teachers within the um, Christian community, within the church, our point is not just to give you a history of the text. It's not just to be able to trace some thoughts throughout the ancient areas and say, well, do you see how a first century person would answer this? The teacher sits in between the first century and present, the tradition received, 
and the needs of this community in order to say, here's a life-giving way for us to step into it. And here's some ways that we can systematize it. Here's some ways that we can put structure to it, knowing that each time the teacher speaks, it's not the last word, just the most current. That when the teacher speaks, it gives wisdom, but that's a wisdom for living now that tomorrow's needs may make us say, we missed something in that construction. So the teacher always keeps us within that tension of what was and where do we hope to build, but tries to take us through with a stable hand. So let's look at the Gospel of John, where John, as the writer, acts as a teacher. John 4, 2-42, tells a story of Jesus in a traveling away from Jerusalem, and he stops at a well. This well is within a different ethnic group that they dislike because in this time, there wasn't much difference between ethnicity and religion because you had the gods of your people. So you would understand these ties being much more closely in, intertwined. So when he stops at a well by a Samaritan town, he's completely outside of his group. But from the ancient well comes a Samaritan woman, which gives rise to a new hope. And what's so unique about this is John as teacher is the only one who tells this story. Because if we understand the development of the Gospels, Mark and Matthew come on the scene first, and they mainly connect us to the Jewish story of how we came to the Messiah. They don't concern themselves too much with the groups outside of the the immediate Jewish people. Luke comes on the scene later, and suddenly we start getting concerns with Roman centurions with some Samaritans. You even get the story of the Good Samaritan. John comes in the scene towards the end of the century, And suddenly you get these very explicit stories of Jesus who sits with other people because the concerns of the community at the time were how we found righteousness outside of ourselves. So what happens here in verses two to six is the setup of the first movement, which ends at midday at Jacob's well. Now the narrative has us just passing Nicodemus, who was the right kind of teacher at the time, but he wasn't able to step into the needs of the community of that day, who came to Jesus at night, in contrast with a Samaritan woman who's going to come out in midday. So the right person who knew the right things, who could tell you the right theories, was unable, because he's trapped in a historical past, to step into the present needs of the community. Between the woman at the well and Nicodemus is this story of Jesus sitting And it just before we step into this moment, in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The one who practices the truth comes in the light. And it explicitly states that Nicodemus came in the middle of the night, where it gives you an exact timing of the Samaritan woman came about midday. In 329, it named Jesus as the bridegroom. Historically, Jacob's well brings the story of Jacob and, and Rachel, who is his first wife, which in Genesis, every time you run into a well, you should be expecting something. Wedding bells are ringing every time water is drawn because the well is the place of meeting your your bride-to-be. And so if we look back to Genesis 29-7, it says, in midday, just like when the woman came out, it's time to water. So we get to see that they're, they're trying to pull something into the front of your mind because they're using echoes of stories so that you get to hear something beautiful about this person. In verse nine, the Samaritan woman says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? 
So the teacher, seeing the need of two communities in dialogue, immediately bring to the forefront their ethnic and historical fighting. Because we may not have the same connection to the word Samaritan, because for us, the good Samaritan helped us out. For us, the Samaritan projects that get attached to charities are always about going and helping the undesirable. But for them, this pain runs deep because the tension between the Samaritan and the Jew began at the return from exile. When you have the people of the land who they now start looking down on the nobles who came back from exile, wanting to control the land, a temple was built in about 400 BCE. And then in the Maccabean revolt, which happened in 164, some of the, the elite Jewish people came back to power because they had a religious movement that caused them to throw off some foreign power. And the first thing they did after they secured Jerusalem was in 160, they marched to Samaria and sacked their temple. And this continued the animosity that they have throughout the Hebrew Bible of the northern kingdom Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah with two centers of power, both claiming a right to Jacob, their shared ancestor. So the woman would be questionable when Jesus stops to talk to her. It's already a time that you don't discuss theological things with women. That was the realm of men. On top of which, you would never discuss this with a Samaritan woman because she's a heretic because they had some scriptures in common with the Jewish people, but they didn't accept the full writings of the ones who would be from um, Judea. They accepted the smaller ones of those who were before exile. So all the ones wrote in the distance, they said, those are not our sacred text. So they said they serve the same God. They said they come from the same ancestor. But one said, your genealogy is not pure enough. And the other said, your religion is not pure enough. And this distinction would be enough to ruin the reputation of a holy man. So the setting of two to six with a, with a woman's explicit naming of the conflict between Jews and Samaritans give depth to the next line of questioning surrounding their fathers over who knows the right mountain and holds an ethnic right to live there. Verse 12, she asks him specifically, are you greater than our father Jacob? Because Jacob is Israel, and this becomes the naming of who the true people are. In verse 20, she said, our fathers worshiped here, and you all, pointing to Jesus, meaning our father's tradition says here, your people's tradition, your forefathers say we must worship in Jerusalem. And this wasn't idle because these were distinctions that they were killed for. So the unique retelling of an ancient story mixed with John's need to answer this community's questions for the reader between the rightness of the two mountains calls people to sit in tension at the well. But this tension provides a way for divided people to move towards uniting because in verse 42, with the disciples shocked that Jesus would talk to somebody that could ruin his reputation, and the Samaritan woman shocked that a Jewish man would come into their town and actually have a real discussion. We see the effect around the community where they say, we know that this one is the savior of the world, not just the savior of Israel. Which transitions to the point that teacher throughout our survey of the text embodied Hillel's Tukon Halom, repairing the world by embracing a view that kept rules, boundaries, and law in dialogue with the compassionate need of the woman at the well. In this way, when we are looking for teachers, we are looking for people who balance rules and compassion, who can, see complete, who can be completely present in this moment to highlight lessons gained along the way, 
people who teach us how to question in order to help us reflect and become the most God-honoring versions of ourselves, rather than simply answering and repeating. Teachers can explain the whole system while you stand on one leg and inspire you to discover a more beautiful, ever-expanding community. For this is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. Now go and study. Now we look closer at the shadow and light side, the vice and virtue, or as we call it, the immature and the mature. Now, if you keep notes with what we do, point one, the immature teacher creates distance. As it says in church's movement, teachers at early stages of development or immaturity can be so exacting and obsessed with accuracy that they, they project right and wrong dogmatically, which gives no space for others to journey and discover. With the ability to collect vast amounts of information and systematize it, they can be dogmatic in areas where they have little practical experience. Thus, knowledge can be overvalued. Teachers can value their relationship with information over their relationship with people. This lack of emotional maturity and arrogance can stunt their ability to pass on knowledge to others. Which reminds me a little bit of myself and the development when I was a first-year Bible college student, I got to sit under an internationally renowned pastor who was invited everywhere to share his wisdom. Now, he was teaching our class on the book of Galatians, and he, much to my pain, read into the text things that did not need to be in the text. So to help him understand his own flaws in thinking, even though he was internationally sought after and I was six months into my academic training, I raised my hand. I said, excuse me, sir, but where do you get that in the text? Because it doesn't exist. He tried to be kind. I was like, no, 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 do, do not ignore my question. Admit you're wrong. And being the wiser man, realizing this would only provoke a fight, which could not be won because I was too arrogant. He said, well, that's lovely. I'd like to get on with my lesson. So in all of my great humility, I kicked my feet on top of the desk in front of me, crossed my arms so I could, through body language, show this older and wiser gentleman, you cannot teach me because you were technically wrong on verse 2, which means everything you have to say to me is now foolish. When we see in John, that same idea, that immaturity, kicking your feet up on the desk, will focus on the historical credibility of the mountains were the Samaritans right according to the traditions or were the people from Jerusalem right? Which mountain gives you the most accurate? The mature joins Jesus in between the two mountains at the well asking, what people can we make? When you explain your faith or teach others about a new way to live, which do you focus on? The people or the mountains? Jesus asks us to embrace the tension of joining him at the well where he does not delimit the community by the faithful disciples' outrage and pain that the Samaritans are there, nor does he kick out the disciples because their people have literally harmed the Samaritans. He creates that tension for all to be present around the well of Jacob, which presents point 1b, opportunity for growth. Allow knowledge to draw you into community rather than isolation. Move towards people. The disciples could not get it. They were literally shocked, it said. Like the Samaritan, they grew by presence, though, which enables John to go from being one of the disciples shocked that you would even include this woman in a discussion 
to the only apostle to keep her story within the Jesus tradition to say, no, this was important because he grew by presence of Jesus. And I got to see this in myself from that arrogant fool who kicked his feet on the desk. Towards the end of my time in undergrad, a person wanted me to mentor them. His name was Josh. And his parents, because I could be a little bit outspoken, were a touch scared at him learning from me. But Josh said he heard from God and I was supposed to be the one to help guide. And in witnessing my growth as becoming mature as opposed to accurate, I got to actually see this effect in drawing Josh into community. Because Josh was a very smart and dedicated student. But he started to realize that just showing up to the church services became boring. Because he said, everything they teach I already know. So what's, what's the point of being here? Josh was processing his life and spirituality and had way more answers than questions. And so I asked him, if you've gained so much, if you have so much insight, where are you giving back to the community? If we're asking within this series, like if you've become bored with the system or you can, you can already predict everything, how are you stepping in your fivefold gifting in order to equip the community? He couldn't answer and say, can I get back to you in a couple of weeks? But this was an amazing surprise for me because like, okay, cool. Maybe that's just it. We'll have a coffee later. He came back to me in two weeks excited like I had never seen him because he said the question bugged him until he became a leader within the group that he said could no longer teach him anything. The question drove him to action and he no longer had as many answers, but he had many more questions for how can I build? Which leads to the last point. The mature teacher is dedicated to the process of people development. Like with Josh Agashi, the process development affected both of us, and I got to see him grow into a more passionate and loving person. If we look at Paul's relationship to Timothy, he tells him in 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 15, that you have followed my teachings, my life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You must now continue in the things that you have learned from me and you are confident about because you know who taught you, which was him. The teacher is not simply the knower of things, but a whole person to know and gain wisdom from. Being dedicated to the process of teaching is more sensei than lecture. It's more wise sage that helps you think through things in a lived out philosophy than it is a person who gives you the perfect answers. So as we close, say, if you resonate with the teacher's passion, move towards people and participate in their development. Take a small step towards honing your skills by, if you're within our community, writing out a soap so that you can share your insight to script and how God speaks to you with the community in the times of shared story. Have a way that you can step closer to someone to help them process life. And by using that aspect of you, not only will you grow and become more strong in your giftings, but you'll see that your giftings are not made for isolation, but they give a vibrant and growing community. Begin listening to more stories so that you can allow your experience and wisdom to meet with the particularity of today because we sit between both mountains of the tradition we received and the community we hope to build. So in short, we need teachers to help people grow. And this means we need to become invested in each other.